If you enjoy the LA Intergroup's Virtual Speakers Bureau podcasts, consider joining over 500 OA members for our annual OA birthday party, which will be held January 17th through 19th in Los Angeles at the LAX Four Points Hotel. There's free transportation from the airport, so ditch the cold weather and join us for a wonderful weekend of OA recovery. Visit oabirthday.com for more information. Oh, Lord. <laughs> My leash. <laughs> I'm Randy, a compulsive overeater. Uh, to get the numbers out of the way, uh, I waddled into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting on March 4th of 1976. I don't know what my top weight was, but I was 23 years old and I knew that I was insane over food. I knew that I did not eat normally. I knew that I did not react normally to life. So when I came into my first OA meeting and I heard that I had a disease called compulsive overeating and that there was help and recovery through the 12 steps, I was just so totally surrendered and desperate that when I came in, it was like that last piece of the puzzle just fell into place for me. And I knew I was home. I knew that I didn't know quite what abstinence was, but I knew that I had to have it because anything was better than the emotional pain that I felt from compulsive overeating. I grasped onto this abstinence thing I didn't understand, but they told me, just do it. And I did it, and I've been doing it ever since. So I've been abstinent for over 37 years, and I've kept off about 50-ish pounds. The reason I say ish is because I do not know what my top weight was. Um, In June of 75, and you can do the math, that was 10 months before I actually found my first meeting. I went to the doctor and for the first time the scale went over 200 pounds. And at that point I had just reached the bottom of the barrel. And that started a 10 month or 9 month binge, constant binge for me. Would get up every single morning saying, this day it's going to be different. And by 10 o'clock, I'd be binging my brains out. That's a.m., not p.m., by the way. (laughs) Uh, You know, I could probably tell each one of your stories because it's mine, too. I grew up with the um, curse of perfectionism. Nothing was ever good enough. And I don't know how much of that was my family, how much of that was me. It really doesn't matter at this point, but there was just something in my brain chemistry that the wires were crossed. I thought that I had to do everything perfectly, including dieting, by the way, and any little mistake would get me into an emotional tailspin. I was just so afraid of making a mistake or making a decision that a lot of time I didn't make a decision at all. 
and that didn't serve me real well. I grew up in a middle-class Jewish household in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Both my parents were doctors, and, you know, in the 1950s, if you were Jewish and female, you kind of grew up, your parents, their goal for you was to marry a doctor. Well, I got a double whammy since both of my folks were doctors. Not only did they want me to marry a doctor, they wanted me to be one, too. I was screwed from, I was screwed. (laughs) Uh, So I grew up with that expectation. And I'm just going to pull in the leash so I don't trip over it. I do, physical dexterity and gracefulness is not one of my redeeming characteristics. Neither is patience, by the way. Uh, But, um, so getting back to my story, I grew up, I always, I got top grades because I was emotionally afraid of doing anything else. And it was always all right. You're not popular. You're not pretty. So you may as well be the smartest. And that was the message that I kept getting over and over and over again from my family. It's kind of interesting that after I started abstaining and moved to California, I met up with some distant relatives who hadn't seen me in a long time. Their first question to me was not, how are you? Their first question to me was, are you the fat one or the skinny one? So weight always had a very important position in my family's life. Everyone in my family was either on a diet or talking about weight. But if they weren't talking about weight, they were talking about food. Go figure. I always, inside of me, was always this scared little girl. I was so afraid that if I made a mistake, whatever that meant, the people were not going to love me. And a lot of the things that I did and the decisions that I made before I came into program were based on this fact that I want someone to love me. And that caused me to make some good decisions, like focusing on my schoolwork, and some very bad decisions, too. My, <laughs> Gary's quiet. <laughs> he knows my story. <laughs> my, so, at 17, I go away to a very prestigious university just to potentially study medicine. After I was there for three days, it was like, oh, my God. You mean I can have all the ice cream I wanted? I reveled in dorm food because there was no one to control me. I also figured, all right, my parents aren't around, and I am going to pick up the scruffiest guy that I know. And everything that my parents wouldn't want in a boyfriend, 
And my God, there was a guy who was as equally sick as I was with his own addictions and willing to pay attention to me, um, which I found kind of amazing because I was too involved in academic pursuits to really worry that much about my social life. And anyway, my sister was the popular one, so, you know, I kind of had an excuse. So I made a very bad decision based on my food addiction to hook up with this person. Four years later, I married him. Thirty years after that, I divorced him. <laughs> Which, uh, and the fact that I... The fact that I hung on for so long, I think, is part of my addiction as well. Um, but that's a whole other story, whole other program. Not going to go into it. <laughs> At age 23, I had just reached the bottom of the barrel. I couldn't stop eating. I couldn't stop these obsessive thoughts about food. I thought about food and weight and used that as an excuse to beat myself up all the time. It was constant. So bringing it back to that first OA meeting, it was like manna from heaven for me. And I grabbed onto this program with all of the fervor of someone grabbing onto a life preserver because I honestly believed that it was life and death for me. I think that's a good part of the reason that I'm still around 37 years later. I still believe that it's life and death for me. I still believe that I am no more than one bite away from a binge. I have no doubt in my mind that if I do that binge and I don't follow the steps and the traditions and the tools, I'm going to be back where I was and worse because I've seen it. I've been to funerals of people in this program. I remember very poignantly one gal who was calling me for a while who was an anorexic and she couldn't stop. She had just come home from the hospital. And I remember very clearly saying to her, what is it going to take? And for me, I'm, I'm so grateful that it took what it took. But that's why I'm still here, because I have no doubt. I see it every single day. I see the successes. And I see the people who maybe aren't ready for this program. And I know in my heart of hearts, I don't want to be there anymore. And I will do whatever it takes. Even as recently as last week, I was in a situation where there was some very tempting food that was literally waved under my nose by an unsuspecting person. Nine times out of ten, I have been so blessed that I can have a, as they euphemistically call it, a pink box waved under my nose. And I don't even notice it. But... This one night last week, I was going bananas. So, yes, even, you know, 37 years does not make me immune from the everyday occasions that tend to make us eat excess food.
Luckily, I had this program and I knew what the tools were. And I literally, I excused myself, I went out and I called a fellow. And I told them what was going on. We talked for about five or ten minutes. And the obsession left me. But this program has given me the tools to deal with that. And I've had to deal with a lot of things because of this program. Some I dealt well with. Some all I could do was muddle through. But I did muddle through. I, I got abstinent and I did whatever they told me to do. I called my sponsor every single morning and I told her what I was going to eat that day. I didn't report it afterwards. Uh, to me, one of the things that I'm learning once again is my whole relationship with food. Um, and I'm going back to what worked for me when I first started in program. Number one, reporting your food is, you know, fine and dandy, but it doesn't work for me. I need to commit what I'm going to have, not report what I did have. Because this way, if I commit, and I commit to my sponsor every morning, what I'm going to eat, and if I change, I, I let somebody know that there's a change. This is, what wor- this is what worked for me. And one of the things about program is that when I get off course, I either I do it myself, but more often than, than not, one of my dear program friends, and it may be a different friend every not, time, will slap me upside the head and will tell me, um, how well is this working for you? Huh? And most of the time I'm going, oh, not too well. So I commit my food every day. I have a very strong sense of what my abstinence is. Um, my abstinence slash food plan, just FYI, is I do not eat recreational sugar, you know, cakes, pies, blah, 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 blah. Um, for me, sugar-free ro- frozen yogurt is a binge food, and I've had to get that one up. Um, and I will eat three to five times per day. Sometimes when I'm really good, I'll cut my breakfast in half and eat it in two installments, and I'll cut my lunch in half and eat that in two installments. And that works for me. It may not work for you. I think part of the wonderful part of this program, and part of the scary part of this program, is that each person's their own path. And that's what makes the experience for me so rich. Part of it is discovering my path, which is my path alone, which may not be anyone else's path, but it's mine. And my story is mine. But I have the experience of other people around me. And I always know that when I don't, when I'm up against something that I don't quite understand, 
I can ask somebody. Asking for help to me was used to be horrible. There was nothing worse than asking for someone for help because that would be admitting that you're not perfect. Today I ask for help, not only in program, but also in all areas of my daily life. Twenty, uh, 37 years ago, I would not have even thought to ask a coworker or a boss, let alone, to review an email that I write before I send it out. Today I do that. And before, um, I've got five minutes left. I really want to talk about two things. Number one are the steps. I can't say enough about these steps. Particularly, every single step has meaning for me. I've had to give up a lot of control in recognizing that I'm powerless over people, places, things. And the second thing is the role of my higher power. I, um, I like to kind of end with this story. For many, many years, for like 25 years, I had this really cockeyed view of my higher power. I was brought up in an observant but non-spiritual Jewish household. And I always thought, you know, God was like the Lincoln Memorial where you had the, the statue of Lincoln in the, in the throne looking down on the peons. And that's the way I thought of God. You know, you pay, pray, that. You prayed to him three times a year. We're just shining him, Kipper. He parted the Red Sea. He was sitting right there with the big ledger. And again, since I was such a fear-based person, I was scared, oh, God, if I did something wrong, I was not going to be written in the book of life. But in my daily life, God had absolutely no relevance whatsoever. You did what you did by your own bootstraps and your own intelligence, and that was it. Today, it's really kind of the opposite for me, that God is everything in my daily life, and the rest of it, the intellectual pursuits. A lot of times, I find myself doing what they do in the big book, is um, relying on my intuition, which is a little weird in my line of work, because I can't really say to a customer, you know, God says you should look at this point in the code for what's going on in your application. That, that does not go over very well. But I, for the longest time, I did not have a, an instinctual, an internal burning belief in a higher power. Then, in 2006, it became apparent that I took a job based on money, property, and prestige. Well, it wasn't working out real well for me at all. And it became very apparent that I was going to get my ass fired. And, and, you know, the usual panic, oh my God, what am I going to do? And for the first 
time, instead of coming to one ads and tweaking each individual resume for what I thought you wanted, I decided I'm going to write the resume for the job that I want and see if the job comes to me. What the hell? I did that. And I also made up a list of the 20 places that I would really, really like to work. Now, here's the crazy thing. To get that job that I was about to be fired from, I sent out 532 resumes. The day that I finished that one resume and the list of companies, a very dear friend called me. He's not in program, but he's very spiritual, and we often talk of spiritual things. That day he called me and said, hey, Randy, just wanted to let you know that I changed jobs. I'm now working for XYZ Corporation. I'm doing that dream job that you and I have already have always talked about for the past 15 years. By the way, they have an opening in L.A., and God told me you'd be interested. I said, you'll get my resume in five minutes. <laughs> he said, don't you want to look at the job description? I thought, fine, I'll look at the job description. I looked at the job description. I looked at my resume. I did not have to change a single word. I had written, unbeknownst, I had written that resume for the job that I had that I have then and that I still have now seven years later. After that time, I really had to take a step back and say, whoa, this higher power thing really works. And since then, I've never doubted the role of my higher power in my life. Those of you who know me real well know that I've gone through some horrendous ups and downs in my life in the past seven years. And there were times that I couldn't get out of bed in the morning except to say, all right, God, please let me put one foot on the floor. Let me put the other foot on the floor. And that's how I got out of bed. But even through those highs and lows, I always had had this idea that my higher power had something better in mind for me. I didn't know what it was, and it wasn't my job to question. It was just my job to abstain, follow the 12 steps, the traditions, and the tools, and Sooner or later, in my higher power's time, all would be revealed. And the gifts of this program for me are so amazing. And they're here for you guys, too. And what does it all start with? It all starts with half a, half a cup of cottage cheese and a banana for breakfast. So with that, thanks for letting me share. This is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own. 
and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. And if anyone asks, I will repeat the question. Yeah? Right. Um, so if I could repeat the question. The question was, how do you deal with the character defects such as resentment or anger that come up um, even after being in the program for a while? That's, how, that's why they invented steps six and seven. And to me, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the importance of step three in their lives and step four. To me, the two steps that we probably talk about the, the least, but which are, which have helped me the most are steps six and seven. So with that, what I usually do is I'll go through the first seven steps on a character defect. If I'm, you know, typical example, my boyfriend said something to me this morning that I didn't like that I was worried about and concerned about. I'm going, okay, I'm powerless over my boyfriend. My life is unmanageable. God, both he and I are in your care. Then what are my character defects? And in looking at the situation, I realized that my character defect was, I was resentful of what he was saying I felt that he wasn't including me in the decision. When I looked at it a little bit further, and this is something that I do in my inventory a lot, I find that what's on the surface isn't really what's bothering me. So in this case, I had a resentment, and in thinking about it a little bit more and doing a fourth step on it, I'm going, okay, what's really under that is fear. So many of my resentments and my anger are just fear in another's body. And I realize, okay, it's fear. Then there is, you know, there's the sixth step became um, I'm entirely ready to have God, God all these, remove all these defects of character. So I'll just say a spot prayer to my higher power. God, please remove this anger from me. Please remove the fear from me. And then humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And the end product of that was that I was able to express my fear to him and say, you know, look, when you said blah, it really triggered thoughts on my part that you were ignoring me and not taking my opinion into consideration on a decision that involves both of us. So I expressed it not with anger, not with hysteria, just real matter-of-factly. And he said, all right, you know, yeah, you're right. Um, We should be engaged in an active dialogue about this. And that was it. The resentment was gone, but it was only by going through the steps that I was able to do that. Yeah? Uh, 
<laughs> Good question. The question was, so what do you do then if that person gives you the bird and does whatever they want to do? Um, it's, I have to admit it. What helps me is to accept whatever happens one way or the other. Again, step one, I am powerless over that person's reaction. My life is un, their life is unmanageable by me. Um, and they have a higher power that's guiding them. And the truth is I may not get my way all the time. And part of not getting, part of this whole thing that I have to get my way all the time, I think goes back to, for me anyway, back to my childhood that I felt that if I did not get my way, it was a mistake and lack of per- and perfection and all that kind of stuff. Um, there are other times I've had to put their name in a God jar multiple times, uh, call my sponsor, and uh, what also helps me a lot is to read the literature. One of the tricks that I use with the literature is I'll take the big book, and just literally close my eyes and thumb through it and you know it's like pick a card any card <laughs> and I'll stop on a page and I'll just start reading and it never fails that within a page or two there's the answer for what I'm looking for you talk about perfectionism how do you just let go of perfectionism how do I let go of perfectionism yeah it is hard um and it's probably the thing that I have to work on the most. Um, have to... The thing that's worked for me, and it doesn't work all the time, I have to admit it, is just to believe that I'm okay, it's okay to make a mistake. Um, that's the first part of it. The second part of it, is to become willing to make amends. And for me, amends is not just saying I'm sorry, it's changing my behavior. Real good example, Thursday afternoon, I made a bonehead error with at work. I totally had something I was supposed to do, and I didn't do it. And my boss called me on it, and she was really upset with me. And my first thought is I go into shutdown mode. But then I kind of got past it and said, okay, I ha- in order to rectify the situation, I have to do, you know, I have to call the consultant. I have to find out a current status. I have to get on his ass because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. But as the manager, I'm still responsible for it. Um, and just to, a lot of it for me it's self-talk that it's okay to make a mistake and what can I do what can I do to change things and let go of what I can't change and a lot of it's just time for me Diane Sorry. Go thank ahead. you so much um, for your lead could you what you do on a daily basis in the morning or whenever it is during the day to talk to those situations. Sure. Come up, but. That's, 
excellent question. What do I do on a daily basis? I have a routine that I go through every every day. Every morning, I have the med- daily meditation books by the side of my bed. First thing I'll do is I reach. Now, first thing I do is reach for my reading glasses, <laughs> and I read my books. I do um, I do writing, and sometimes. Um, I'm not real good at meditation, but when I do do it, I find it's very beneficial. And I don't do it every morning, but, you know, five mornings out of seven, that's what I'll do. It just gets me centered and gets me into the mindset that I honestly believe that program is the first thing, the most important thing in my life without exception. I have so many blessed things in my life and I don't want, and doing that every morning just kind of focuses me in on how grateful I am for this program and the gifts that I have in my life. Gee, I'm surprised that Carol didn't ask that one. Uh, the question is, what is the role of service in my life? I learned very early to give service and I have given service. It's just such a wonderful way for me, first of all, to remind me that I have this program, that this program is part of my life. And secondly, a lot, uh, a lot of times I think, gee, I don't really have very much to share or that um, I look at other people and I go, you know, my recover- I don't have their recovery. Service helps me to, um, I know this is trite, but it really does help to get me out of myself and I always end up feeling better. And service doesn't have to be anything dramatic. Um, I always, I have to admit that I wanted to be a circuit speaker but I've kind of um, become at peace with the fact that that's not necessarily my path. However, that being said, I have to be very careful of my motives because having the low self-esteem that I do, if I'm compulsively giving service because of what I'm going to get out of it, then I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And lately I've had to pull back from service commitments because what I've usually done in the past is I compulsively say, yeah, I'll do serve, you know, hand, first hand to pop up. And then I get so overwhelmed with overcommitting myself that I'm no good to anybody. So I found that I've had to be a little choosier about the service that I give. Um, I think in the big book they give a good rule of thumb is that are you doing it for you or are you doing it to the other person? Are we free of self-seeking motives? And if I'm not, then, you know, I've really got no reason doing it. Corey? Uh, the question was, has there been a time 
when I've gotten sick and tired of going to meetings? Yes, absolutely. It went on. Um, usually, um, between year 22 and 23, I went through that period. And then again, you know, probably between like 32 and 33. Uh, yeah, I went through a period where I was sick of meetings, I was sick of program, I was sick of calling people, I was sick of not being able to eat what I wanted to eat. I was angry. And then, as time went on, I found myself moving away from program, and that scared me. And I'm right. wait a minute, if I keep in this direction, I'm going to be out of there I'm going to be um, I'm going to go back to compulsive overeating and then I see the examples of people I've known who have relapsed and I think of them and I'm going you know it's not a pretty picture and that usually snaps me out of it pretty quickly we have time for one real quick one. Go ahead. Um, how did I apply my program to my parents' disappointment that I didn't live up to their expectations? Um, very. It's funny. Very early in my abstinence, I went through a time period where I didn't talk with my folks for about a year because it's just what I had to do and just to get my head on straight to become comfortable who with the person that I was and after that time period we had a very frank conversation um, about how um, you know I'm not the person that you think I am and we kind of talk through our differences and today we have a really good relationship with each other um, though the fact that they're 3,000 miles away does help somewhat and the fact that uh, the fact that they have seen me succeed, thrive I hate to use the word succeed because succeed is such a relative term, but the fact that they have seen me thrive on my own path has really helped them to accept who I am on a daily basis. So with that, it is time for me to shut up. <laughs> Thank you for letting me share. Uh,